to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. A very short passage today. Luke chapter 16. Only four verses. We're still dealing with this remarkable Saturday afternoon. Okay? It, it would appear to be that the entire time of Luke chapter 15 and 16 occurred on one Saturday afternoon. They had been to synagogue and had been in, and it would appear that Jesus had been invited back to a Sabbath meal, probably at the house of one of the Pharisees who he was speaking to. So it's Sunday lunch, roughly equivalent what we would have. He's speaking there and begins to teach and that people have come to listen. He begins to teach and to speak and some quite remarkable teaching is given here. The problem being that the, the audience, if you remember, consisted of two groups, or three groups really. There were his disciples. There were the sinners who crowded around to hear. And there were the scribes and Pharisees. The disciples hopefully listened intently, learning. We know that the common people, the sinners, heard him gladly, delighted with what he was saying, but the reaction of the religious leaders of the day was not quite the same. So let's have a look at that in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. Before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds. Teach us, Lord some of the wondrous things that are found in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things and they derided, it, derided him. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous. What does it mean to be covetous. It's not a word that is used a lot today, is it? It's not a word that's in common use in the English language today. What does it mean to be covetous? Primarily, covetousness or to covet is to want what is someone else's. Okay? Now it's distinct and should be considered very different to being ambitious. For instance, let, let's ex put it to an illustrate a way that we can understand it. I go out there and on the street as I'm going along, I see a man in a Lamborghini, Gallardo. The L4, L140, you know, 
the LP55-2. Yeah, now the car nuts have already, they've imagined this exactly from that description, okay? A red one, because they go faster, right? right? And I'm sitting there looking at him, there. And he's sitting there in his red Lamborghini with the blonde next to him. Now I've already got the blonde, so that's not a problem. But I look at that Lamborghini and I say to myself, I want his car. That is coveting. If I say, I want one just like it and determine that I will work and save and earn money and I will put it aside and I will buy one just like it, that is not coveting. That is ambition. That is a desire. And provided it doesn't take over and rule your life, there is nothing wrong with that. That is simply saying, I have a goal, I have an aim, and I will achieve it. But to say, I want his car, never mind his blonde, I want his car, that is coveting. It's wanting not something in the abstract sense, but wanting something that belongs to somebody else and is not yours. That is coveting. Coveting is wanting, desiring, and lusting after something that belongs to someone else. Now, the very first use of the word covet, right? the very first use of the word covet, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus, now if you, if you know your Bible, you're starting to think, hang on, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 commences with the words, Thou shalt not covet. The very first time this word is used, it's used in a negative sense and it's, it's accompanied with an instruction not to do it. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbour's, and while it's not in there, you can add, nor his Lamborghini. Right? It's, that would probably come under ass. Right? You, you're not to covet things that belong to someone else. This is repeated, in, in, interestingly, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 5. All right? Um, In verse 21 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's interesting that it, it uses the word desire. Neither shalt the, the, thou desire thy neighbour's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbour's house. To desire, to covet, it's repeated there. The third time, it's starting to get interesting here. The third time the word is used in scripture. I mean, it's got a bad connotation the first two times. The third time the word is used in scripture is in Joshua chapter 7. Have a look at that one. 
Joshua chapter 7 verse 21. Joshua chapter 7 is the story of Achan. Now you remember that the children of Israel had come into the land of Palestine. They'd conquered Jericho and they were told to utterly destroy it. To take nothing for themselves. To, to completely destroy it. And the only things that were to be saved alive from Jericho was the house of Rahab who had shown her faith in the God of Israel in sheltering the spies. Everything else was to be destroyed. Nothing else was to be taken. Only her and her house was to be kept. But someone took of the treasure, of the spoil of Jericho. And as a result, Israel lost its next battle and were humiliated. So they proceeded to go through and find out who it was who had taken the accursed thing out of Jericho and listen to Achan's explanation. In Joshua chapter 7 verse 21, Verse, starting at verse 20, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and, a, uh, and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of of my tent and the silver under it. Now, if coveting is to take something or to desire something that is not your own, whose was this? I mean, the person who owned it was dead. The, 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 the city of, 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 Jer of Jericho had been completely destroyed. So if he was coveting it, whose was it? Well, it was God's. The instruction was that all the treasure, all the gold and the silver from the city of Jericho was to be put into the treasury of the tabernacle for the use of the tabernacle in its, in its services. He coveted that which was God's. And took it for himself. Covet to desire that which is not yours has, a, has an important place amongst the Ten Commandments. It's a very, very important place. The last commandment deals not with what you do, but it deals with how you think. And this has a very important place in the spiritual maturity of a very significant person because have a look over in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7. Hmm. Paul is talking about his own spiritual development here in Romans chapter 7. And in verse 7 he says... What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. 
Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now, what Paul is getting at is here, he was living the life of a Pharisee, a strictly religious life. And he didn't vary from the law one little bit. The law said it, he did it. And he had got to the point where he'd started to think to himself, yeah, I've arrived. I am without sin because I keep the law exactly. That was fine until he read and understood the truth of thou shalt not covet. And he realised that while he could control his own body, he couldn't control his mind. And that to covet, to desire the things he should not have because they were not his, was something he was guilty of and therefore had broken the law. Not one little tiny little bit in some obscure passage somewhere about, you know, some religious routine or something like that, but one of the ten biggies he'd broken. And he looked at it and he said, I'm a sinner. Now that's the effect of thou shalt not covet had on one of the greatest religious minds that have ever lived. It brought him to realise his own sin. Because he could control what he did, but not how he thought. He could control his hands, but not his heart. So this concept of thou shalt not covet is absolutely essential to understanding the way we are as people. Because have a look back there in, in Luke. Let's go back there. That was... A little digression so that we can understand what does it mean to covet. Verse 14, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. The, the Pharisees, they attempted to cover their own thinking, their own situation by dismissing and mocking what Jesus was saying. <coughs> but notice in verse 15 he says, And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For you see, covetousness is not a sin of the hands. It is a sin of the heart. And God knew their hearts. And is known sometimes only by God. There are some sins which you know you, you get caught out with. They they get out there and people see them. And there's nothing you can do to pretend it didn't happen. But to covet 
No one knows about it except God and you. And therefore, it's a sin which is right inside the side people and, and you know, it's something that no one else will know about. But God sees your heart and, and you have to deal with it between you and him. So let's think about it. Why is God so down on coveting? Why is God so... Why does he make a point here? Why did he make a point in the Ten Commandments? What is it about coveting that is so wrong? First of all, to covet something that is someone else's means you are wanting something that God has not given to you. Okay? That is to imply that God either doesn't want to give it to you or can't give it to you. To covet something and to say, well, God didn't give me this, but I want it anyhow, is to say that God either doesn't know what you want or God doesn't care what you want. Or is to say that both God knows and cares about what you want, but is being a meanie and cruel and denying it to you. That's what coveting really means. It's to accuse God of not knowing, not caring, or, not, or just being plain cruel about denying you something. Covetousness is an insult to God. When you look at it like that. To say, I want this and I will go and get it and take it off someone else when it's rightfully theirs because I want it is not just theft, it's covetousness. For the origin of theft is not in the hands but in the heart. Now, in the, the, the business I, I deal with, I deal with a, some people who steal stuff. You know, it doesn't start with them stealing it. It doesn't start with the shoplift. It doesn't start with the burglary. It doesn't start with the armed robbery. It starts with someone looking at something, either money or goods or something, whatever it is, and saying, I want that. And it's not mine to take. And so they take it. I want it. I'm going to have it. It's theft starts with covetousness. There's another reason why God, if you like, is so down on covetousness. Have a look in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 
it says in verse 5, for, for this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It links covetousness and idolatry. Uh, Colossians says the same thing in, verse, in chapter 3 of Colossians, uh, verse, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. It's saying that it's putting covetousness on the same rank as fornication and evil thoughts and bowing down and worshipping idols. That's pretty serious. He's saying here that to covet is idolatry. Why? Because it's worshipping and serving something other than God. Now it's interesting. Why idolatry? Because if you notice that people don't tend to covet the abstract. It's very hard to covet something abstract. You could look at someone and say, that person is so intelligent. But you can't covet that. Because it's not a thing. You know, when you covet something, it's an object. It's a physical thing. And you reach out and serve that with your heart, and that is idolatry. It's to put a thing in place of God and to desire it and to serve it. <coughs> now, some people will say, and, and you may be sitting there going, ah, I'm, I'm right this time. He's, he's missed me. You know, I've, I've dodged, dodged this one. Because that applies to rich people. And it is true. There are rich people who covet. Someone said to uh, one of the very wealthy people in America one time, what, it, what is it that you want? And his reply was, more. Well, that's covetousness. But you think about it, I have seen covetousness amongst the very poor. I've seen covetousness amongst the middle class and amongst the rich. To desire that which is not yours is not at any one level of society. It can occur to anybody. It can strike at any time to any person. People say in their hearts, oh, that's not me. They say with their mouths, that's not me. But God knows their hearts. God knows what they want. 
God knows what they desire and God knows what they would reach out and grasp and take if they had but the opportunity. You see, if you covet something and you take it, well, that's theft. But if you covet something and don't take it, God says in your heart, you would have done that if you could. That's covetousness. It's idolatry. It promotes envy. It promotes evil feelings. Because when you think about it, we'll take ourselves back to the example again. You're standing there. There's the man in the Lamborghini. And you say, I want that. So how, much, how do you feel towards the man who has got it? Well, envy, hatred, despising. All these things are flowing from covetousness. It promotes an evil feeling between people. Back in, in Luke, and Jesus speaking, and he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is, a, is abomination in the sight of God. That which men do to justify themselves, you know the, the origin of the, the word abomination? It means it stinks. It stinks. Yeah. That which people do to justify themselves, it stinks in God's sight. Then he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. You think, is he? No, he's not moving off track. There's an important point that he's making here. Incidentally, that term, the law and the prophets, if you look down, we find an almost identical term used in verse 20 of the, the chapter. They have Moses and the prophets. In verse 20, verse uh, sorry, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. In verse 31, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, very similar term, the law and the prophets. Do you think there's a connection? Well, those amongst you who would consider yourself Bible students, go and have a look. I suggest that there is, and let him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. There is a connection. And we may yet get to that in another message. The law and the prophets were until John. What was John's message? What was the message of John the Baptist? Well, look over in Matthew. We've already had it read out in our readings. Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 or verse, starting verse 1 In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
That was the message of John the Baptist. What was the message that Christ preached? If you look over in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, and from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message of the disciples, keep turning, you'll get to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. As the disciples were sent out, Jesus said, And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, and I tell you, look, there's a sermon there for free for anybody who wants to, to take it. Back in there in Luke, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached. Okay, what is the message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first stage of that is repent. Change the way your heart is thinking and looking. Change the way you're looking at things. And why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were saying, repent for the Messiah is coming. We preach, repent for the Messiah is coming back. Same message, really. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Haven't really changed. And part of that repentance is changing your attitude to things and stuff and changing a covetous heart. Repentance involves a change of direction and a change of attitude. The kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fall, including the tenth commandment which says, Thou shalt not covet. And anybody who thinks that they will be able to stand before God and say, I kept all the law, that one there, thou shalt not covet, will bring them down. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. What's a tittle? Okay. A tittle is not a verse. It's smaller than a verse. A tittle is not a word. It's smaller than a word. A tittle is not even a letter. It's smaller than a letter. It is part of a letter. The, the best example in English would be the cross piece on a T that changes it from an L to a T. That's a tittle. It would change, for instance, a capital E into a, or change a capital F into a capital E. Now, it's one stroke of one letter. How much of the law will fail? How much of the law will you be able to escape? Not even the cross piece of the T. That's how much the law is fixed and will not fail. If you think you can escape and go to God and say, I didn't do this and I didn't do that, you will be judged by the standard down to the cross pieces of the L's and T's. 
of the law, including thou shalt not covet. It brought undone the Apostle Paul, who realized when he saw it back in Romans that this meant he was a sinner. That he was unclean and undone in the sight of God and that he needed something. The next verse, people look at it and say, what is this verse doing here? It's a verse on divorce. It says, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Understand that this is not primarily a teaching on divorce. If you want a teaching on divorce, go to Matthew 19. Got big slab on divorce. So why is it here? Why, has, why did Jesus put it here? I believe he put it here because this was the primary example, the worst case. This was the major point where covetousness was showing up. That's why he put it here. Because remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, what was it that it started out with? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Oh, yeah, that's why it's here. Because here was the primary example and the worst example of covetousness that was being seen here. This was the worst case where the Pharisees had twisted the teaching of Moses to their own ends. They had got to the point where they were teaching that a man could divorce his wife for as little as burning the dinner and then go and get another one. Go and get another one? Yeah. Go and get another younger prettier, richer one. Covetousness. Desiring something which was not theirs, which God had not given them. Desiring something which belonged to somebody else. And this was the primary example of it and that's why it's been put here. Women, when divorced, were deprived of all rights, deprived of their home, deprived of all compensation. It was vicious, it was nasty, and it was wrong. They had even cheated on the directions of the law. For the law said that if you divorced a woman, you had to give her back her entire dowry, which sometimes was quite significant. They would cheat her out of that also. They coveted and lusted in their hearts for that which was not theirs. 
I will not speak much more on this point of divorce. That is for another place, another passage and another time. Save to say this, divorce is not in God's plans. And I speak that from experience. There are no winners in divorces. And it permanently scars everybody who's involved. And that's a personal as well as a biblical perspective. Perspective. Covetousness. To desire that which is not yours is probably the primary cause of divorce. To desire that which is not yours. What then should be the Christian's attitude to covetousness? Turn, please, over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But all fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Let it not even be named among you. Let it not even be mentioned among you. We should have the same attitude to covetousness in our hearts as we do to fornication and uncleanness. Wow, that's pretty severe. To desire the things that God has said, no, it's not for you. We should, as children of God, be committed to the point that this will not be named amongst us as individuals and not be named amongst us as a church. To want the things we should not have brings ruin and sorrow and despair. Because even when you get them, you will be like the children of Israel who lusted after the flesh of Egypt and God gave them the desire of their heart but sent them leanness of spirit. And even as they lusted after it with the meat in their teeth, they died. You will destroy your own self from the inside out if you covet, if you desire that which you should not have. It is a cancer which will gnaw away at our vitals. It has been said that it takes no more energy to plan than it does to dream. Well, it takes no more energy to plan than it does to covet. If you want something, that is good. If you desire something, work for it. Earn it, learn it, teach it, do it. But to lust after something that someone else has and desire what is theirs and not yours is an evil thing which will destroy your heart and soul. We are told that God knows about it, for God knows the workings of our hearts. 
We are told that it should not be once even named amongst us as Christians individually or as a church. We are told that we will be judged by the standard of the law which says not one tittle, not one cross piece will go. That's the standard. We also are told that we can have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that he will forgive us of our sins. And we are told very clearly that the Holy Spirit will aid and enable and help when these things come. But we're also very clearly told that these things must be confessed to God, that they must be dealt with in our hearts, and that we must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we must turn from these things and seek the things of God and not the things of our own lusts. Brethren.